ahead and turn to, uh, if you will, John chapter number 1. John chapter number 1. And hold your place there for a minute. And uh, we're dealing with the book of Exodus. But we're going to look at some other passages today, and so that will be one of the first ones we'll get to. We spent some time last week dealing with uh, the writer. Of course, uh, pretty well uh, accepted that Moses was the one who was the human author uh, to pen these words. We believe, of course, that these holy men of God that were writers of Scripture were inspired by God and that God gave them the exact words that He wanted them to pen. <coughs> and we believe Moses was no different in this. We gave you uh, references of Old Testament Scripture that indicate that Moses was the writer, some references in the New Testament uh, that uh, he was also the writer. And we find that the basic story of Exodus is uh, the record of uh, Israel becoming a nation. Uh, They uh, are blessed by God and and multiply into, in just a few generations, into millions uh, of Israelites. Uh, we see God's divine protection and His provision for them along the way. We see His deliverance in the book of Exodus and how He delivers them from uh, the nation of, or the land of Egypt and Pharaoh. Uh, the book was probably written during the wilderness wanderings. It seems to be uh, a lot of it is written in a, more of a narrative form as though um, uh, Moses was uh, keeping a journal or a log of the uh, workings of God among His people. Um, the, uh, we talked a little bit last night, or last, last week, I say last night, last Sunday, um, about how, uh, how many times there are parallels between Christ and things that are pictured uh, in the book of Exodus, and how uh, the Bible is uh, so full, especially in the Old Testament, of pictures of Christ. Uh, a lot of people, there's some Bible scholars out there that will say, well, Christ isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, but... Uh, I beg to differ with that. I believe that the, the Old Testament is used time and time and time again to point to Christ, to give pictures of Christ, to, uh, to tell you of things that are to come with Christ. And so we mentioned several of those last week, uh, how that uh, Moses is a type or a picture of Christ in the uh, fact that they were both uh, uh, under uh, uh, persecution when they were born. They both were uh, at, in, uh, in harm's way. Uh, they both had to uh, be cared for and, and uh, uh, to keep from being killed as, as young children. Um, the uh, Christ was uh, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And uh, Moses, of course, uh, was a, uh, a prophet. And uh, he uh, certainly went to the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel. And while he was not necessarily a king, he did certainly serve in the position of ruler of uh, Israel during that time under the authority of God. Um, we find that Moses and Christ were both kinsmen redeemers. They both were from the people that they were coming to bring out uh, or to uh, redeem. They both willingly renounced uh, their power and their wealth in order to be able to accomplish what they did. They both were lawgivers. Uh, they both were mediators, and they both were deliverers. And we kind of finished there last week. And so I want us to look at uh, the last several um, pictures of Christ. We're going to be probably at least all of this Sunday school hour and maybe a part of next week's lesson as we go through some of these. But I want us to look at some other pictures of Christ. So Moses uh, oftentimes can be used to to be a parallel or a picture of Christ, and we can see a lot of what Christ is going to be doing as the Messiah as we look at the life of Moses. The second picture that we find of Christ in the uh, book of Exodus is 
in the event of the Passover. In the event of the Passover. Uh, let's look in John chapter number 1, and you should already be there. I should have probably already turned to it. John chapter number 1, if you will. And uh, let's look down at verse number 29. John chapter 1, and uh, let's go to verse number 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. If you remember the story of Passover in the book of Exodus, uh, God was uh, God told the nation of Israel, He said, I want you to go and to take a lamb without spot and blemish. I want you to, uh, to slay this lamb. I want you to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts of the house. And uh, the, uh, the death angel was to come over the land that night and would take the firstborn and kill the firstborn of each household unless he saw the blood. And uh, it's a, tip, uh, a type or a picture, again, of uh, Christ's atoning work by His shed blood. And uh, Jesus, or, uh, God told the, the nation of Israel, told, Moses, uh, told Israel through Moses, He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the word pass over from. Uh, the idea that those that were inside that house that were protected by that blood that was sprinkled on the doorpost uh, were under the blood of that sacrifice. Now, that, that sacrifice, that lamb, did not have atoning power. It was a symbol. It was a type. It was a picture of a blood that would be shed one day, that would be perfect blood. It would be satisfactory of God's uh, divine justice and the fact that it would satisfy the penalty or the payment for sin. And uh, the blood of, in fact, the book of Hebrews is very clear on this. It says that the blood uh, of bulls and goats cannot uh, forgive anybody of their sin, cannot cleanse anybody's sin. So why did they have to do this over all these years? It was to picture uh, the fact that they were putting their faith in what was to come, that the Lord Jesus Christ one day would come and shed His own blood, His perfect blood, and that it would be a covering for their sin, that it would cause them to be able to be atoned uh, for their sins. So we find the Passover is, again, a picture of Christ. We're not going to read all of these uh, references that I give to you here, but let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And uh, some of these I'll leave as we go through the lesson for sake of time. We'll leave for you to uh, look up on your own personal study. And uh, But let's go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And uh, let's look in verse number 7. <clears throat> Paul writes here to the church in Corinth, he says this, Purge out therefore uh, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, uh, as, ye were, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, notice this, our what? Our Passover is sacrificed for us. So again, uh, the whole purpose, the whole process of Passover in the book of Exodus is a foreshadowing or a picture of what was to come. Uh, God was making sure that the nation of Israel knew uh, that they were to put their faith, not in the blood of that lamb, but looking forward to the blood that was going to be shed one day by the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, people in the Old Testament got saved the same way we do, by putting their faith. As we look back to Calvary and say, I trust in Christ, they looked forward to Calvary and said, I have faith and I trust in that uh, sacrifice. In fact, uh, I've heard a lot of people teach differently than that, by the way. But when you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11, and they go through the list of Old Testament saints over and over and over and over again in that chapter, it says, by faith, by faith, by faith. It talks about the works they did, but it was because of their faith. 
not to earn salvation, but because of their faith. And uh, very, very important that we understand that. Uh, so, again, the Passover pictured in Exodus is a picture of Christ. And uh, then there are the beginnings of the seven. There are seven feasts that God gives um, to the nation of Israel to observe. They are to do these every year. And uh, we find the beginning of these being introduced in the book of Exodus. We find them uh, expounded on a little bit further in the book of Leviticus. And God really gets into some detail on them. I'm not going to do a full study on all the feasts, but I'm going to give you the seven feasts and show how they picture Christ in each one of them. Um, it's a very, very interesting study. And uh, there are basically seven feasts. There are three of them that were to be practiced during the spring of the year. Uh, the first one was the Feast of Passover. Uh, we do that around East, what we call Easter time, uh, and so that's again in the spring of the year. Uh, just a few days, uh, or as part of that uh, week of celebration, we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that is also to take place during that time. And then there's also what they call the Feast of the First Fruits. This very, very interesting study as you look at these different feasts. And isn't it amazing how God uses the number seven so often in Scripture as a sign of completion? He gives seven feasts. And uh, so the Passover, of course, I don't think anybody here would, uh, would say, well, that reflects or represents or is a picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the slaying of the Lamb, uh, the sprinkling of the blood. Uh, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is the idea of Christ's burial uh, and uh, the, the payment of sin or the leavening of the bread is, is being taken care of and is being purged out uh, through, that, that, through that death and that burial. And then, of course, the first fruits uh, is being referred to as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that again if you're in 1 Corinthians 5 still. Uh, let's take a quick look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, we'll see how these things kind of uh, are paralleled. <clears throat> Once again, verse number 7, we find, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, and as ye are uh, unleavened, even for, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So that's showing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, is sacrifice. Verse number 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but, that the, uh, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, the, uh, the feast of unleavened bread was for a purpose of purging or this uh, getting rid of the old nature. Uh, and then we have in... Uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter number 15, since you're already there, just turn over a few pages. So we have the Passover shown there in chapter 5 and verse 7. We have the unleavened bread uh, shown in verse, and how that ties to Christ in verse number 8 of chapter 5. Then in First Corinthians chapter 15, if you will look in verse number 22, Paul writes this, he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we have here the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the resurrection of the dead. Look in verse number 20 for a minute. We'll back up just a little bit. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the, what's the next two words here? The first fruits of them that sleep. All right? So we have, in the spring, they have the Passover, represents the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which represents the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they have the Feast of First Fruits, which represents 
the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing how God uses these to picture these things? The Old Testament saints understood that these things would happen, uh, that these were going to be some things that would take place. Uh, they didn't understand them fully uh, because God had not yet fully revealed all of it, but the, the mystery of all of it, how it's going to work. But He does begin to show them the pictures of it. Uh, when we baptize someone, we baptize them uh, picturing or showing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, dying to the old flesh and the old nature, uh, purging out that old sin, getting rid of all of that. Now, the baptism doesn't do that. It's just a picture of what's taking place in our hearts and rising to walk in newness of life. I don't want to serve the old nature anymore. It's still there. It still wars with my, my new nature. But I'm rising to walk. I'm making a commitment. I'm making a purposing in my heart. I'm going to walk in newness of life. And that's what the uh, baptism shows is that I'm dying to self and raising to walk in newness of life. In the summertime, they have uh, the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. Of course, we understand from the book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit uh, came and filled them. Uh, now, it's interesting to note that uh, God, was, God was with the disciples. God was already indwelling the disciples prior to uh, the time at Pentecost in the book of Acts. Some people would uh, argue that or disagree with that, but if you're saved, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the idea that there's something that is quickened or made alive inside of us when we get saved. The idea of Pentecost was not that the Holy Spirit was coming to reside in them, but that the Holy Spirit was coming to empower them and to strengthen them for the work that was to come. And uh, so we find that in the summertime they were to have this Feast of Pentecost, which deals with the time of the Holy Spirit working and coming upon uh, men. Uh, this is known... Uh, I'll back up for a minute here and, and talk about that in just a second. Let's go on to the last three. In the fall of the year, they were to have the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. They were to have the Feast of Atonement. That was the sixth day, the Day of Atonement. And then they were to have the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let's take a minute. I'm going to try to do my best to, to, to help you picture this. In the Old Testament, uh, if you take and, and one of the best places I know to look at this and to see how this, this takes place uh, is in the book of Ruth. You hear about Boaz and how he was... Uh, threshing, and you learn the custom of the day and uh, with regards to harvest. And the custom of the day was when the fields would begin to ripen, they would go out into the fields and they would take a sampling of the harvest of only that that was starting to ripen early. And uh, they would call that the first fruits, uh, uh, the harvest. They would uh, begin to harvest the first part that came off. And this was to gauge how the harvest was going to be, but it was also to be used as an offering to the Lord, a first fruits offering to the Lord. And uh, so they would come in and they would do a, a small, uh, very selective harvest of some things, um, and they were called the first fruits. It wasn't the main harvest, it was just this part was ripe, it was ready to go, and they came and they took that. They would uh, then uh, uh, celebrate as a family, oftentimes, they would give their offering of the first fruits. And they would be excited about the harvest, whether it was good or bad or however things were going with that year. 
And uh, then when the harvest came in full, they would have what was called uh, the harvest, and they just called it the harvest. And that was the main uh, gathering of, of the crop. And in, uh, then uh, those that were, uh, as they were harvesting, those that were harvesting, if they were to drop any of the stuff that they harvested, they were not to pick it up. They were to leave it there. And the reason for that was that the poor would then come to the fields after the harvest and they would get the gleanings. These would be the last fruit, the last things that were left there. And they would get these gleanings, and that was how God used to support uh, the poverty-stricken, those that were poor in the nation of Israel. So you had the, the harvest that was, it was a three-part harvest. They had the first fruits, then they had the main harvest, and then they had uh, the gleanings. It's interesting uh, that the Bible talks about the Lord Jesus Christ when He rose from the dead being the first fruits of the resurrection. And uh, those that were raised with Him, because there was a number of Old Testament saints, the Bible says, whose graves were also open and were resurrected during that time and had walked on the earth also during that time with the Lord Jesus Christ. People saw them, uh, eyewitness accounts of them. And uh, then, uh, so those were considered to be the first fruits. From the time of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ until present day, uh, God has, as we've studied on Wednesday night in prophecy, God has paused His dealing with the nation of Israel and has entered in or ushered in the time of Him dealing primarily through the church, uh, the church age, local New Testament churches, and His Holy Spirit has been working during all of this time. Uh, and we are looking forward to the day of the rapture uh, when that happens. What's going to happen on the day of the rapture? What, what, what indicates the fact that the rapture is starting? What, what is, what's the first thing we're going to see? The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Isn't that amazing? And uh, so we find here that if you were to break these seven feasts into three categories, in the spring you have the first fruits, in the summer, you have the harvest, and in the fall, you have the gleanings. You have those that are, that are left at the end here. Look at the way this is all laid out, and it's, it's interesting how perfect God is when He wrote Scripture. Isn't that amazing how all of this fits and ties together? So we have the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ shown in the, in the first fruits. Then we find the Holy Spirit coming on the scene. He's working through the local New Testament church for 2,000 years. And the fifth feast is the feast of what? Feast of trumpets. What does that sound like? Sounds to me like the rapture, doesn't it? The feast of trumpets where God is going to call out the church and He's going to collect Israel back together again and restore them fully and begin working with His people once again during what we call the tribulation period, the seven years, which the Bible refers to here in this feast as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is not for saved people to get resaved. It's the day of God atoning uh, the transgressions of Israel and redeeming them back to be His people again and to begin working with them again. And so again, that Day of Atonement, <coughs> where the uh, restoration of Israel takes place, and then finally, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the seventh day. And uh, the idea, what, what was the tabernacle? Why was that so significant? What was, the, what was the benefit of the tabernacle to the Israelites? What was the purpose of even having a tabernacle? That's what? Okay, God's presence was there. 
He wanted to reside with his people. And so they had the tabernacle built. And uh, you'll find that in the book of uh, Exodus, uh, God gives them instructions to build the temple or the tabernacle. And the first thing that Israel did <laughs> was rebel against God and not do it. And they didn't do it right away. They, they went into some sin, and God has to deal with them. God reissues the covenant to them again. They finally, willingly say, yes, we're going we're gonna to partake of that. And they finally build the tabernacle. And guess what happens when they build the tabernacle? Right at the very end of Exodus, the thing that happens when they build the tabernacle, they've got it all finished. The Bible says that God came and He filled the tabernacle with His glory, His presence with His children. And they have now a, a Sabbath of rest, if you will. That's the term that's used. I'll have to get you the passage of Scripture. I might have it written down here in just a few minutes, um, if I can find it here. I wrote a lot of passages down. But they have a Sabbath of rest when, when Christ comes back at the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, I believe we see uh, the Feast of Trumpets being the rapture, the Day of Atonement being the seven years of God bringing Israel back into agreement with Him and making them His people again, and then the Feast of the Tabernacle representing the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that we'll uh, be able to rule and reign with Him. So seven feasts. Seven feasts that Israel are to uh, observe. And some people say, well, those are just feasts. Those are just celebratory times that God wants them to observe. But they picture something so far deeper than that, so much deeper than that. And it's interesting that even through those, you can see prophetically, you can see historically at first, and then prophetically in the latter ones, what God has in store, what God has planned. And the fact that they all match and are in agreement with all the rest of Scripture is even more amazing because Moses wrote this uh, probably somewhere around 1,400 years B.C. And uh, it's interesting that um, that many years can separate different authors writing and it all agree and it all just fit uh, and make these things work. So anyway, that's uh, back to the uh, front side of your uh, notes there. That was number three, the seven feasts where each one of them portrays a particular aspect or part of the ministry of Christ uh, as, as he goes through this. Uh, some of it has already taken place. We're in that, what I believe to be, uh, the, uh, uh, the Feast of Pentecost time period where the Holy Spirit is working and dealing through His church. Uh, and then uh, the times of the trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles are yet to come in the end times. And even though they observe these as literal annual feasts, we see the shadowing or the picturing again of some things that are interesting to look at. All right. Um, the fact that the Israelites were led out of Egypt, the Exodus itself, the, out, the, the, the coming out of Egypt, uh, is also a picture uh, of, uh, Paul relates to it as uh, baptism because of the symbolizing of death to the old and identifying with the new. Let's look in Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6. And uh, let's look in verse number 2. Let's back up verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ 
was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so again, the coming out of Exodus, a lot of folks look at that as Exodus being the old nature, the old sinful nature, and uh, the time of us getting saved representing the Exodus from that, the wilderness wanderings being the life that we lead prior to getting to uh, heaven, which would represent be represented by Canaan land or the promised land. And that's why so many songs are written about when we come to the Jordan uh, and the idea being that that's our crossing, that's our time of coming from this life into the time of eternity uh, to be spent with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, you see a very clear picture a good illustration, if you will. By the way, let me stop here because I mentioned this early on and I want to, when we started this study, and I want to make sure we understand this. We don't build doctrine on the illustrations of Scripture because a lot of times the illustrations are there to illustrate a main function. There's not a complete parallelism completely all the way down side by side of every point. So you've got to be careful that you don't base your doctrine solely on an illustration of Scripture. The illustration of Scripture is there to help us understand the doctrine that is taught in Scripture. So be careful of that and, and make sure that you don't uh, over-literalize something and, and try to, to read something into a nuance of a picture that Christ gives in Scripture um, that, that is not part of what the basic doctrine teaching is. So be careful of those things. But we do see a, a broad overview of uh, Egypt being the life of sin or the old nature. The coming out, or the exodus we'll call it, uh, being the moment of salvation, the time of salvation, then the wilderness wanderings being the life we live as a pilgrim passing through. We don't have a home right now. This, this world is not my home. Uh, I am passing through here, and one day I will get to my home, that, that place that has been promised to me. And so again, we see that being shown in Scripture. Uh, the manna and the water. Again, the New Testament uh, talks about both of those being a picture of Christ or a type of Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He also told the woman at the well that if, he, if she had known who he was, that she would have asked him to give her uh, of the water of life where she would never thirst again. And again, uh, just showing the uh, manna and the water uh, that was given to the uh, Israelites in the book of Exodus as a way of sustaining them. And uh, by the way, uh, not only did God save us the day we trust Him as our Savior, but He continues to sustain us. And again, a wonderful picture of eternal security given by the fact that God continuously provides for them throughout those wilderness wanderings. Um, the tabernacle, uh, very interesting. Uh, one of these days we will do an in-depth study on the tabernacle. Um, it's interesting how much the tabernacle uh, pictures, things of the New Testament, uh, the furniture, the materials that were used, the arrangement. And uh, it's interesting that the tabernacle clearly speaks of the person of Christ and the way of redemption. Um, it's, it's, it's a progression. When you came into the temple or the tabernacle back then, um, that there was suffering and the blood had to be shed and the death had to take place in order for you to be able to enter into the place of holiness the place of beauty and the place where God's glory was, those things had to happen first. And again, a wonderful picture of redemption of man. There had to be suffering. There had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and I to ever have a hope of heaven, for us to ever come into the glory of God. And again, the way of the tabernacle is, is a very, very clear picture 
of uh, the salvation uh, process and what Christ was going to do. The high priest that is uh, given extensively in the book of Exodus uh, as God lays out uh, very specifically what the high priest is supposed to do, what his uh, duties are, how he was supposed to act, again, very much foreshadows the ministry of Christ, our great, great high priest. Um, And again, you've got some passages there, Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 9. We won't read them today for sake of time, but you can read those uh, during your self-study of time where Christ is our high priest. And I love that. Uh, He is the surety, He is the guarantor of our salvation in uh, our high priest. Just some general notes to finish. (coughs) Exodus abounds with displays of God's power and uh, His redemptive acts on behalf of His oppressed people. It begins with pain, ends with deliverance, as does our life. We live in this life now, and yet we look forward to the day that we'll be delivered um, uh, from the groaning of the people uh, to the glory of God. Israel turns to God for deliverance. He responds with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. One of the great verses of Exodus is found in chapter 6 and verse number 6. God faithfully fulfills His promises to Abraham, which, by the way, God always faithfully fulfills His promise. That ought not be a surprise to us. And then the, the book is basically broken down into two parts. Um, and uh, I will, I'm, going to go th- I'm going to read these through quickly, and I will have these printed out because these are some notes that you don't have on your paper. I'll have these printed out for you next Sunday, so don't fear that we're going through them too quickly. For sake of time, we're going to just read through them. But it's broken basically into two parts, the redemption from Egypt, which is found in verse, chapters 1 through 18. And then we find how God reveals Himself to His people in chapters 19 through 40. And so I'm going to give you a real quick breakdown here. Um, in, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, basically all of chapter number 1, shows their need of redemption. By the way, every one of us has a need to be redeemed. Amen? Uh, if we were saved or if we were lost, we had a need of redemption. Chapter 2 to chapter 4, through the end of chapter number 4, shows that there has to be a preparation of the leadership uh, of redemption. And so in order for us to be saved, uh, Christ, who is the, the, the sole provider of our redemption, there had to be some things take place. He had to come to this earth. He had to live a perfect life. Um, he had to suffer. He had to die. He had to raise from the dead again. And so there had to be that, that, that preparation for the redemption. Chapter 5 through chapter 15, we find the actual redemption of Israel taking place. And then in chapter 15 through chapter 18, we find the preservation of Israel. And again, you can take those four things and, and parallel them to our salvation. We had a need of redemption. We had a need for a Savior to come and to, to make redemption possible for us. We had a, a need to come to Christ and say, I want to be redeemed. I want to trust you as my Savior. And then we trust Him to preserve us day after day as a Christian. And so we see, again, a wonderful picture of salvation given there. In chapter 19 through the end of the book, we find that He begins to reveal Himself. He establishes what we refer to as the Old Covenant, or Christ refers to it as the Old Covenant, or we would call it the Old Testament. Uh, That's why our Bible is divided into two halves, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant that God made with His children. Uh, he gives in that covenant, he gives some commands to Israel. He gives some judgments to Israel, which, by the way, uh, when God uh, saved us 
and we are under now the New Testament or the New Covenant, guess what? We still have some commands from God, don't we? Uh, we still have some judgments that God makes uh, for us. We're to live in a way that is pleasing them. Our, our salvation doesn't end the day we get saved. Uh, our, our salvation to go to heaven is finished and complete, but now we have to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Not to keep our salvation, but because we are saved. We want to make sure that we're pleasing to Him out of a heart of love. Um, then there is in chapter 24 through chapter 27, we see that God tells them to build a tabernacle. He says, look, I want, to, I want to live with you. I want to be in your midst. I want my presence to be there. And Israel sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. They kind of push God out at first. Uh, a lot of what we do sometimes. We're supposed to walk with God when we get saved. We're supposed to uh, commune with Him daily. And yet sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. We kind of push Him away sometimes. Um, God is long-suffering. So in verse number 32 through verse, uh, chapter, verse, chapter 32 through chapter 40, even though Israel kind of rebels against that, Moses intercedes for them and comes back again and again and offers again. And I'm thankful that even though we fail God sometimes, we have an intercessor that intercedes on our behalf. And His love is continued to be long-suffering to us. Finally, willingly, as the nation of Israel grew in the wilderness... They come to Christ, and, or they come to the, the place of willingly obeying God, building a tabernacle, and they begin to walk with God. And the Bible says in verse chapter number 40 that when that took place, He filled the tabernacle. Can I tell you, the walk with God that we teach and we preach from this pulpit is not so you can get saved again. When you get saved and you trust Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. But walking with God will cause Him to be able to fill our tabernacle with His glory. For Him to be glorified through our life. And again, wonderful, wonderful pictures in the book of Exodus that so much parallel the redemptive story and what we go through here. And um, even though these are literal events that took place, God in His divine wisdom uses them to perfectly illustrate so many things that we enjoy that we hold to. Uh, those last notes that I gave you there, don't fret over those. I'll make sure you have a copy of those next week, and uh, we'll move on from there, all right? Let's go ahead and uh, be dismissed in prayer, and then our next service will begin here in about ten minutes. Father, we're so grateful for uh, your Word, how it excites us. As we read and study the pages, Lord, how perfect it is, how amazing this book is to help us to understand. And, Lord, as we understand and the more that we understand the more excited we get about the work that you have done for us, the work that you continue to do in us, and the work that you have yet for us to do. And, Lord, we're so excited to see what your hand is going to be doing in the near future. We study prophecy. We look at portions of Scripture where we see the things that you have yet to come for us. And with great anticipation, we rejoice in them, looking forward to them. We pray that you'll dismiss us now with your blessings. Bless the service to follow. And speak to our hearts. May you do a great work in us. May your Holy Spirit do his free work in our hearts. May we be yielded to him this morning. And for the next little while, Lord, I do ask that you would help us to take the things that we came in here with, that our hearts were burdened with, our minds are, are preoccupied with, and may we be able to lay them aside for a few moments and put our hearts wholly upon your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.